0: it's important to underscore how different that is to the world that we've all grown up in, in the end of history. When there was perma war, but it was far away. It was inconsequential, and politicians learned that you could have consequence free war, um, consequence free both in terms of it, human terms, but also for their yes, own right. political yeah. um, situation. Yeah. You know, if anything, you you go launch some war far away, that might bolster you in the polls, or maybe no one pays attention. But either way, there's no consequences. And yeah. we're in a world which is far more consequential now, um, yeah. again, both in political and in human terms than um, yeah. than than we grew up with. And I think the faster yeah. we come to terms of that and realize that not just us, the three of us sitting here, but the world at large, the better. Hello listeners new and old, this is BungaCast, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history, or formerly known as Alpha Bunga Bunga, if you've been with us for a while since uh, we were officially called that. Thanks for being with us. And if you're new, uh, welcome. And we're going to tell you a little bit about this podcast as we're taking the opportunity to celebrate our 300th episode. And uh, some people have satirized us a little bit as the politics of the end and uh, joke that we're we're at the end of the end of the end of history and so on. Uh, But today we're talking about the biggest end of them all uh, which is the possibility of annihilation extermination by nuclear conflict are we looking forward to this one i'm alex hohealy uh, i'm asking that question to george hoar in london hi hey and to philip cunliffe in uh, canterbury uk how are we feeling about annihilation hi.
1: well i was going to say you made it sound as if you're looking forward to the annihilation rather than looking forward to the discussion
0: no, that's right. I'm looking forward to the discussion. Although the annihilation would mean we could all just relax finally, um, so I guess it would have How that salutary that effect.
1: Well, you don't have so, to think you,
0: anymore if you're dead. Yeah, um, you've
2: got nothing to do on your to-do list. You've got no no troubles, no worries. less um, um, survival, just the next meal. How you're gonna uh, get water? You know, it's, life is considerably simpler in a Mad Max scenario than in in contemporary capitalism. So take uh, the small mercies. Yeah anyway a that's new, that... a
1: new take on a marxist idea of revolution from you george
2: yeah i'm just saying like revolution is quite complex it requires a lot of planning and strategy and then when you do take power you've got to decide how to make decisions about things and drive human history forward it's a lot of pressure a lot of burden sometimes you just want to like nuke, nuke and chill um That's an easier weekend.
0: (laughs) Um, That, I should say, is the very end of the glibness, because we are talking about a serious matter. Uh, The reason is that the Ukraine war, uh, which is effectively a proxy war between NATO and Russia on European soil, is uh, a point at which we are closer to nuclear conflict than at any point since the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis. In fact, we're recording this on the 14th of October 2022. It was 60 years ago, on the 14th of October 1962, that Major Richard Heiser took hundreds of photos of suspicious installations in the Cuban countryside from a U.S. spy plane, which revealed Soviet missile installations on the Caribbean island. Uh, we're obviously in a very different situation to that of the depths of the Cold War, and in some ways good and in some ways bad. Uh, unlike 60 years ago, very few people alive have a memory of total war, and that, as that is something to be avoided. But also unlike the period of the Cuban Missile Crisis, we have actual conflict now between NATO and Russia in Ukraine, which wasn't the case in the early nineteen sixties. But before that, um, and if you're listening to this after annihilation and are living through nuclear winter, uh, we thought we'd give a recap of BungaCast and what we've done over the past five and a half years. Uh, we began in April twenty seventeen with the explicit project of exploring the contours of the breakdown of the neoliberal order and looking at what comes next, so that we might be able to politically respond to it. So. We began in in 2017. Our interest was in exploring politics globally and not just the current thing as it's now called. And to also look at places which are sometimes not so talked about or are only talked about by left-wing podcasts when there's something exciting going on, which we can get behind. Instead to try to treat global politics a little bit more seriously. So already in 2017, we dealt with the coup in Zimbabwe. We looked at uh, the world beyond satire with Karl Remarks. We had Angela Nagel on to discuss her book, Kill All Normies. There was at the time Aung San Suu Kyi facing accusations of ethnic cleansing and genocide against Rohingya. So we discussed that. We covered Charlottesville as well as Macron's election, which was uh, a a clear moment of a yuppie simulacra of a populist breakthrough. And uh, we discussed what that might mean for Europe you Know reflecting back on Macron,
2: I think, um, you know, he's come to be one of the and probably post Merkel, the defining politician in, in Europe. And it, you know, we don't want this to just be a, a parade of, you know, we got this right, told you so's. But, um, I think that, you know, that initial diagnosis of, of Macron precisely as you know that antibody of the system, that you know, the yuppie populist, his transition. From that kind of form of of what would later be described as techno populism, to his current role within the politics of the European Union, I think that was uh, we got that one right. I think we we kind of
0: described that
2: emergent phenomenon and um, you know the importance that uh, would come to have.
0: I mean in 2017 you know you were in the midst of dealing with brexit and that i suppose coloured not just your understanding of what was going on in british politics but to a certain extent gave you know was a window into a wider sort of breakdown of the neoliberal order
1: yeah definitely i mean the um that whole period in fact i think you know i mean it was a vindication for something that we'd been discussing i guess at least in private and certainly felt around 2015 you know we were talking about you know kind of fumbling our way to some of these ideas the idea of the end of the end of history prior to setting up the podcast and it was partly that that kind of uh, prompted us to do so and so but the point is you know it was still kind of uncertain at that point the significance of i don't know say the jeremy corbyn being elected to leader of the labor party didn't seem like it was uh, necessarily you know on the cusp of this um radical kind of derangement and restructuring of British party politics, let alone politics across the Western world. it turned out it was. Um, and so it was, I mean having both having the um, podcast. As a way to um, help clarify our own thinking, and by trying to communicate it to the wider world um, and to other people about what was happening in Brexit Britain, but also the opportunity to kind of link it to developments that were happening elsewhere. So it was a good opportunity and a benefit, um, at least to at least to me, of having the podcast at that time.
0: And of course, there Phil led on to uh, to a secret that we were indeed friends. Before we started this podcast, we didn't just come together um, for the explicit purpose of of podcasting. (laughs) Um, But uh, as 2017 rolled into 2018, uh, mass protests uh, erupted in Iran, um, indeed then as now. And it was predicted then, as we discussed those Iran protests, that that regime uh, wouldn't be lasting very much longer. And even if those protests and that uprising failed, that uh, another one would be around the corner soon enough. And so it proved. Uh, We also talked about South Africa, look at uh, the corrupt regime of Zuma um, going out and Ramaphosa coming in. We discussed a uh, concern key to our heart, which is that of Italy. Um, And Italy as the country of the future, which we discussed with David Broder. And of course, you'll have noticed probably by now that our emblem uh, is that of uh, the face of Silvio Berlusconi, our evil patron saint, because uh, as we've argued a number of times, uh, and you know this isn't an argument that we ourselves alone have made, but uh, the idea is basically that Berlusconi set a pattern of a type of populist politics, indeed of techno-populist politics, which would come to be replicated around the world. And he did it earliest and arguably did it best, if you can count his clown show as a a sort of performance. We also covered uh, plenty of what was going on in uh, kind of the crisis-ridden Southern Europe and Italy and Portugal and Greece. Uh, We had Catherine Liu on to discuss the ghosts of May 68, looking back 50 years on from May 68 and looking at how... That was such a pivotal moment in changing the culture of Western societies, the politics, um, particularly of the new left, and how we were still very much living with those consequences. We also covered the Turkish and the Colombian elections, and we did something where we advanced a new term to try to understand, to try to get to grips with what was going on, and specifically with all the hysterical reactions to this breakdown that we've been talking about. Something that we came to call Nobs or Neoliberal Order Breakdown Syndrome. After that episode, uh, we paired that with two other episodes looking at the breakdown of the Neoliberal Order by... Uh, discussing Domenico Losordo's liberalism, a counter history, and looking back at Mark Fisher's capitalist realism, which uh, had been published 10 years before, and trying to look at whether we had moved on from the capitalist realism that he described at the end of the 2000s. We also covered Duterte in the Philippines, just as Brazil was about to elect its own version Uh, in Jair Bolsonaro. We discussed the Gilets Jaunes, which was France's own version of its uh, populist eruption. And we tried to provide an overview of populism by inviting our friend Anton Jaeger on to discuss that.
2: Yeah, you know, What I think I really enjoyed in 2018 was some of the more kind of social theory things. I mean, you know, it's always a great opportunity to take a step back and have a look at some of the developing ideological trends. I remember the episode on woke consumerism, particularly, which, you know, I think is a pretty widespread and obvious thing now. And maybe it was even in September 2018. But I do, you know, I, I still remember that, that discussion um, and that kind of analysis of how, you know, partly driven by advertising, how um, how this approach to packaging goods and and making consumers change. And I think that's just accelerated
0: since then. No, that's right. And then I think what was interesting in the beginning of 2019, um, another series we did trying to examine a little bit more theoretically, some of the ways that capitalism tries to package itself up today. And part of that is the culture of entrepreneurship, which we discussed with Alex Gurevich. Uh, we also looked at how that fits in with a longer standing tendency, uh, right from the beginning of the 20th century, of right liberal authoritarianism. We had Ishailanda to discuss that with. And we closed off that series by discussing uh, the People's Republic of Walmart, an argument for Uh, socialist planning, as opposed to relying on the market to uh, organize the economy. And we had uh, Lee Phillips and Mikhail Rosvorsky on to discuss their new book. Um, I particularly enjoyed that one. Culturally, we discussed the Oscars and contemporary film with uh, Maren Tom. We discussed the collapse of journalism with Amber Lee Frost. And we held our first live event. Uh, this was uh, af- very much after Brexit. So we had an event called Europe After Brexit, which we did in London. We invited some guests to discuss that with uh, Principi, Lee jones and David Adler. Uh, I talked to Glenn Greenwald in Brazil. Uh, we reviewed the Zizek-Peterson debate, remember that, with Angela Nagle. And we discussed universalism with Kenan Malik. Those were all uh, highlights for me. And uh, uh, George and I went to Southern California, uh, invited by Catherine New. Yeah, we went to California. We
2: did some on the ground interviews and we structured it all around this idea of the Californian ideology, including actually some, some interviews in London. And I think that was, you know, that combined with that Uber mention of capital um, series, Alex, I think that was that my highlight of the year, that the idea that you could have sort of these loosely connected themes and that podcasting is a good medium for exploring these these things these kind of like ideas which which creep out and maybe connect with each other and and maybe don't fully close off but you can have discussions yeah. about them and explore them and sorry phil i mean I it was say, the, the weather was the fact, great the food was great we had a good time as well
1: despite the fact i wasn't in in socal for the Calibunga series don't call After, it, SoCal. it was a great it was a great um, <laughs> it was a great
0: series and it was still one of the most popular one things we've done, um, I think, because it uh, touched on something which people identified all around them, this sort of yeah. unity of uh, of kind of hippie ethics with uh, neoliberal capitalist imperatives. Um, Hippies and yuppies. together. The, and
1: other, the other big thing in 2019 was also that we started writing our book. Um, And that was like, uh, that was, shall we say, I'm very glad we did the book and it's been very, uh, it's been, you know, productive and useful. I would say it was probably a less pleasant process than recording some of the episodes that we did, (laughs) all told. Um, But still, obviously, like it was, uh, it was worth it in the end.
0: Yeah, I think it's important to say that as we were developing this perspective on global politics, as we were going through making the podcast, um, it was actually suggested to us by our friend Lee Jones that actually this deserved to be condensed and put together into book form, um, which eventually was published the following year as the End of the End of History. It's also worth remembering that 2019, especially the latter half of it, was a year of global protests, something that's been extinguished in the memory by the pandemic that succeeded it in early 2020. Uh, but you know, we covered uh, the postmortem on what happened in Greece, the Syriza. We covered the Hong Kong protests, revolts in Chile and Ecuador, the fall of Java And we took the opportunity towards the end of the year to celebrate our 100th episode by asking some of our uh, favorite guests and friends of the podcast, what was the end of history to explain in their own terms for them how they experienced the end of history or uh, indeed how they remembered if they're not that old. Uh, And finally, we finished off the year by providing an aftermath of the UK election, which we decided was a disaster foretold because of uh, the way that the British Labour Party was unable to or decided not to support Brexit and how that uh, saw them punished at the polls at the end of that year. Yeah, I mean, this was all part of a a broader process in which the uh, kind of left populist experiment from, let's say, 2015 until 2020 was falling apart. And so in the following year in 2020, uh, we provided a sort of postmortem on left populism in April as the uh, Bernie campaign founder. And at the same time, Corbyn had already been defeated, as had Syriza. Uh, and uh, meanwhile, Podemos in Spain had been pretty much incorporated into kind of a ruling center-left neoliberal bloc. Uh, only really Portugal stood out as anything slightly different. Um, so I think that was also quite important for us because a lot of the excitement around doing this podcast in, in the period that we started it was that there was, a, there was expectations that there was a kind of new left emerging around what, was generally called left populism. And that fell apart surprisingly quickly, which I think for us all made us feel like we had to up our game and try to really understand at, at, at a deeper level what was going on and why that failed um, to try to present or at least provide the kind of clear some path for understanding what, what might be a more propitious alternative. Uh, also that year, of course, uh, in February 2011, we had an episode called Corona geddon uh, with Lee Jones, an expert on China, and Mark Honigsbaum, an expert on who's written on uh, the history of pandemics, um, not knowing, of course, uh, what was coming for, for all of us. And of course, as with everyone, uh, the pandemic and its uh, catastrophic uh, management uh, was a matter that dominated a lot of our discussions over the, over the next years, uh, whether we wanted it to or not. We also did possibly our Maddest episode, I think we'll all agree, uh, with John McAfee, uh, RIP, um, which um, a lot of people really disliked because he was insane, uh, again. Rest he in was peace. really drunk.
2: He He drank like a whole bottle of um, rum, and he wouldn't stop banging on the table when he was making his points. Um, but he was kind of an interesting guest, actually, I thought. The sound quality wasn't that great, and yeah. <laughs> little things going for that episode
0: yeah uh i mean
2: he he has a he was a you know big libertarian guy that's a that's an important ideology in, in america so they tell me
0: so we also discussed um, the Irish elections, which saw Sinn Féin rise, uh, the Serbian elections, which covered Lily Lynch, of course, Black Lives Matter, uh, and a whole range of things in Asia, Saudi proselytism, Singapore's economic model and its myths, uh, Lebanon's disaster after the massive explosion there. Uh, and we also covered uh, more theoretical issues, the end of conservatism with Julius Krine, uh, the question of national cultures with Benjamin Moser, and uh, the, the threat supposedly of automation with Aaron Beninav. And we closed off the year by talking, of course, about the U.S. elections with a couple of our friends, uh, Amber Lee Frost, Alex Gurevich, Michael Tracy, Angela Nagel, uh, and also had Wolfgang Schrecon, um, who was lovely to have on for the first time, uh, talking about German hegemony. It's weird like
1: i actually realized we've done quite a bit of stuff in the last few years listening to you talk alex it, it,
0: it is yeah no i in going through this and trying to pick out some things that stood out in terms of how they related to what was going on then um it, yeah it was like wow we've we've done a lot of stuff um i wish i could remember it all maybe it would maybe be useful <laughs> if i could <laughs> remember what we've learned um
2: you could you could subscribe to the patreon to get um all <laughs> That's of, such a good suggestion to get two, yeah. at least two bonus original episodes every single month and if you pay ten dollars well then you get access to the reading club where we discuss all kinds of things and i'm sure that you were going to come to
0: the reading club i think that's a suggestion you
1: should definitely do it alex are you going to subscribe to the patreon
0: i i I, um i I actually have a kind of backdoor kind of free rss fee Mm. but um that's the privileges of hosting i suppose um so obviously in 2021 You you should support the project and you should pay I mean, but fair enough, if you don't yeah. support the project, good to know. <laughs> Not putting my money where my mouth is. Anyway, so uh, in 2021, we had ongoing discussion of the pandemic, of course, um, criticisms of lockdown. Uh, we actually came to discuss that and its economic consequences with Adam Tooze, uh, uh One important criticism of lockdowns and their effects with Alex Gutentag. Uh, We covered Scottish Independence and Gay Liberation. We discussed two of Phil's books that came out that year, uh, The 20 Years Crisis and Cosmopolitan Dystopia, um, both excellent episodes and excellent books. Uh, We covered the... Revolt in Myanmar, uh Chinese the history of Chinese economic reform with Isabella Weber and Indian identity politics with Achin Banaik. And of course, uh, in the middle midway through that year, uh the, the end of the end of history was released and we had a lovely launch party in London. Uh, it was great to meet so many of you who were there. Yeah, uh, and carried that on with the great. Pub and I was bar also, for hours after it.
1: It was one of the few. Um, it was actually also one of the few um Well, one of the early, should I say, not one of the few, but one of the early kind of uh, public events that I think anybody who came along attended in the aftermath of lockdown. So not only was it like, uh, you know, a privileged opportunity um, for us to meet um, lots of our listeners, many of whom we had met before, um, but also, you know, it was also great to be back in in public uh, with uh, friends, strangers, um, colleagues, comrades um, over a drink in a bar
2: i mean no it was great people were very um very starved of of social and uh intellectual in-person events and so we, so gave, they, we gave the so people they, like even us it. yeah <laughs> exactly so from that low um that low floor it did a, it, no it was a it was a really it was just like a lot of fun just having a few beers and and talking with um, listeners. And hopefully we can have another event. We'll write another book and another one after that. Notwithstanding what Phil said about the, uh, you know, it's never easy to write a book, but you get rewarded with a book launch. So we should have another one soon. Oh shit, we will. So you're going to get onto this, aren't you?
0: I am. Uh, So, I mean, at the end of uh, 2021, we had our 200th episode, which we celebrated by asking uh, a whole range of contributors, uh, what country in the world best encapsulated the 20th and 21st century. Uh, So what issue in in particular would kind of capture that? Would it be decolonization, uh, uneven and combined development, or the end of politics? In fact, in the end, I think it was Germany that won. Um, And uh, fittingly, we discussed at the end of that year, the end of Angela Merkel. Um, We also released another series, which we did. uh, This perhaps our our most produced series, a five-part series on generational conflict, looking at the theory of generations, uh, generational conflict through the 19th and 20th century, and then uh, three episodes, one on the boomers, one on Generation X, and one on millennials. And then moving into this year, uh, we started the year by announcing a a grand reset, if you will. We completely revamped our reading club, arranged around three themes, emergency politics and control, firstly, then cynical ideology, and finally techno-feudalism, which we're just getting onto now uh, at the end of the month. So there's still time to join if you want to follow us along for that uh, final tranche of uh, three episodes, looking at techno-feudalism, looking at the political economy of artificial intelligence, works by Joel Kotkin, uh, and finishing off the year by discussing changes in labor about precaritization and the gig economy. So anyway, it'd be lovely if you joined us. That's for tier two patrons for $10 a month and up. We also discussed uh, German Greens, Swedish populists, and Canadian truckers. Uh, we had analyses of class in America with Michael Lind, as well as with uh, Vivek Chipper in separate episodes. And we had uh, a couple of live events, a live event in New York with Adam Tews, uh, and book launches for the German edition of the end of the end of history in Berlin and Munich. Uh, just to cite a couple of other things we've done this year, techno-populism and ener- energy politics. Uh, we covered the French elections again and looked at the South African mafia state, uh, plenty of discussions around emergency politics, which uh, coincided and uh, very much follows along the themes of what we were looking at in the Reading Club. Uh, we are currently covering the Brazilian elections with the ongoing bungazon series. And uh, we recently had Branko Milanovic on to discuss what communism was really in retrospect. Um, and so plenty more to come. I don't know if you guys want to shout out any, any other highlights or things that you found especially meaningful for you
2: one of the definite highlights for me was the generation series. We had some music commissioned by Johnny Mundy. Um, I just thought it was a a way to explore something in in depth with some great interviews and some really interesting readings that we obviously were doing and sharing to prepare for those. Um, Yeah. So I'm, I'm looking forward to more, to more series. I think these are, these are, you know, something you can do on podcasts that you, you don't want to be too kind of, it's the only way to do podcasts, but it's certainly something you can't do with other media quite so easily.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And if uh, you're listening to this, and you want to shout us out an idea of something that we should cover in a long form series, exploring a topic in more depth, do let us know. Uh, we're open to suggestions. we uh, looking forward to doing uh, another one in uh,
1: 2022.
0: So um, the reason that uh, we're discussing the possibility of nuclear annihilation for a 300th episode, is that we think it's a sufficiently weighty topic, um, whereas previous ones have looked back to the past, looked at what the end of history was, what indeed the 20th, the real meaning of the 20th and 21st centuries have been. Uh, This one looks at something which is staring us in the face right now. And it's always, you know, it's tempting to try to avoid any being overly portentous about this. Because uh, you don't want to sound like, oh, now we're reaching the end of human civilization. But I think, uh, Phil, you've written several pieces on this and have argued, I think, convincingly that we are in a, at a very precarious moment, one which the rules of international politics seem much more up in the air than they did even during the Cold War period, which, of course, um, despite the risks that it presented, was in some ways uh, characterized by stasis rather than movement.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, And this goes back, in fact, I mean, part of this was, um, you know, it's a mayor culpa to some degree, because in the aftermath of the 2014 intervention, the Russian military intervention in Ukraine, I mean, this is when the Ukraine war started um, with the annexation of Crimea and the Russian military intervention in favor of the separatists in um, the Eastern um, Russian speaking regions of Ukraine. Subsequent to that, I assumed the war had stabilized and it was only kind of the skeptical voice in the background of my colleague um, at the University of Kent, uh, Richard Sakwa. And um, this is we had actually Richard Sakwa on to talk about this. This was episode 270, Russia versus the West. And it's worth going back to for those who are interested. Um, But he was the one who consistently reminded me of the fact not only I mean, not only that the war was continuing, Um, kind of simmering on the ceasefire line in the Donbass, but also the fact that it was still astonishingly dangerous given how um, important the Putin regime reckoned it was to keep Ukraine um, out of NATO. Um, And he wasn't the only one to say this. I mean, also this was picked up by John G. Mearsheimer, the US international relations theorist at the University of Chicago. But the point being that this is, you know, it seems to me that their analyses have been vindicated and particularly the fact is this was Richard Sakwa's phrase that it was a slow motion Cuban missile crisis, effectively what was happening. And this seems to me to be the case. Um, many parallels. Um, and I want to talk through what some of the parallels are and also what some of the differences are. Um, but also, as Alex says, I mean, I suppose just to underscore the fact that it's um genuinely, you know, a genuinely uh, dangerous situation. What I wanted to do is with talking about this. So, you know, I mean, there are plenty of people um, who could, you know, perhaps offer more um, precise estimates of the risk of nuclear war, explain the rationales of nuclear deterrence of um, the failure of nuclear disarmament talks, nuclear arms reduction talks, the overall kind of strategic balance between Russia, China and America, whether we're in a multipolar world or a bipolar world, all of this stuff. And I mean, you can see some of this in the show notes. Um, uh, We can point you to particular thinkers. um, And a lot of this is being discussed in live time and in public, um, which wouldn't have been done in the past. And that's thanks to social media and to Twitter. And so, I mean, if you look at, say, if you, um, a few of the leading people would be associated with the quincy institute Anatole Levin, uh, or patrick porter or um, paul post these are all people who discuss some of will discuss some of these um the kind of the strategic military and um hard geopolitical questions around the crisis in some detail and you can you know follow what they say quite easily perhaps i suppose in a bigger picture what we wanted to do was rather than think about those things which other people are um, you know uh, better equipped than us to kind of provide more detail on we wanted to think more about the broader political questions and also the ideology or the ideological differences between the nuclear crisis that we're confronting in Ukraine versus the paradigmatic um, nuclear crisis in Cuba in the 1960s. And so this is what motivated us to try and think about it and also to hopefully offer a perspective that hasn't thus far been offered in the debates on you know, on the prospect of a nuclear war um, between the US and Russia.
0: No, very good. So what, what we're going to do now is, well, have that discussion that Phil suggested, and also look comparatively at the Cold War, at the Cuban Missile Crisis, and try to tease out what might be different about today and what might make The world safer or more dangerous um, in light of those changes. I think one thing, just to kind of try to put this in the context of our wider project here, is that this is very much an end of the end of history moment. And I think many people have pointed out that the invasion of Ukraine, um, return of land war in Europe involving a a, a great power, is in some ways potentially a, a key index of the even return of history. And the reason for that is that. While we often discuss uh, history as coming off, uh, you know, riding the coattails, effectively, of mass movements, of mass politics, um, indeed of revolution at the end of the day, Uh, war is another one of those vehicles which has often been a motor of history. And we're seeing the consequences of that all around us, as everybody had you know, can't fail to notice um, that the invasion of Ukraine has prompted this energy crisis in Europe, uh, the rise and return of inflation, such a key uh, feature of, um, you know, the second of the 20th century, which seemed to have been defeated, uh, has now returned, and a whole range of political consequences ensuing from those political economic crises. So I I think I just wanted to put that in, in that context, and to maybe as a way of explaining why we're discussing the possibility of nuclear annihilation, because there is a temptation, I think, of, Trying to avoid any theorization of it because you just hold your hands up and go, one, this is completely out of our control. If it happens, um, effectively, it wipes out not just the present, but it wipes out any future and wipes out the past as well because there's no one left to record it. So it seems such an absolute destruction of everything uh, that it's hard to even get an angle on how to discuss it right? It's either you have nothingness or you have the continuation of of the world. Um, so what do you what can you say about that? Well, we're going to try to find some ways to try to understand it. We can refer back to a piece by E.P. Thompson um, from the early 1980s in which he talks about um, or tries to advance one theorization of how to understand what he calls exterminism. So we're going to discuss that. And so I guess to start us off, Phil, uh, you've written these pieces on Unheard and trying to understand i guess what the pivotal what the pivotal issues are in trying to understand what whether there would be nuclear annihilation what what would prompt it and so on
1: yeah so i mean this was prompted some time ago by a um a russian documentary that was released around um based around the life of a man called stanislav petrov who is a soviet lieutenant colonel in the early 1980s in the soviet at the time, Soviet Russian nuclear defense forces. And um, it was only in the aftermath of the cold war that his role became more widely known. And they made this documentary around him, which was half drama, half interviews with the man himself. Um, and he was kind of this kind of, um, uh, kind of cranky old eccentric at that point. But in the early 1980s, um, he was kind of instrumental in a particular episode whereby he um refused to follow the um kind of protocol of reporting up the chain of command what appeared on the russian early warning system as an Amer- as an american as a launch of american nuclear missiles and so as the story goes he saved the world from nuclear armageddon by preventing a russian retaliation to the apparent nuclear missile strike in the event it turned out that it was actually that the soviet satellites had picked up the glare of um the sun of sunlight on clouds, and they mistook this for the heat signature of nuclear rockets being launched from the U.S. Um, and so, I mean, people who want more details about the what happened in 1983 can read the piece. You'll see it in the show notes. Um, but I suppose the what prompted me to think about it was that it wasn't the only case in which a Soviet Russian nu- you know officer saved the world from nuclear Armageddon. There are other examples given of this. Um, and another one, which is also kind of you see bandied around on social media frequently, is a Russian naval officer who was stationed on a submarine that was during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And that was where the other officers on the sub wanted to launch um, a nuclear tip torpedo against the US naval ship that was harassing them. Because they assumed having lost radio contact with Moscow under the waves, the officers on this sub assumed that a third world war had already broken out because they were death charges were being dropped on them from above. Um, and because this uh, this single kind of uh, Soviet officer, his name was Arkhipov, he decided um, you needed the agreement of three officers on the sub. He was the one who the unanimous agreement and he was the one who refused to give to concur. And so they didn't launch the nuclear torpedo and, you know, nuclear war didn't happen. Anyway, the point is, this got me thinking about the ideological kind of aspects of nuclear crises, because it struck me that, you know, you never hear about American officers kind of saving the world from nuclear Armageddon. It was always kind of Russian officers and it was always presented to Western audiences that Russian nuclear officers um, or military officers with some, of some description or other had saved the world from nuclear war. And so it struck me that there was an ideological element to the way in which these stories were presented, that it was a way to present kind of the story of um, a heroic individual in a totalitarian system, exercising their moral conscience as against, you know, the kind of... Um, these bureaucratic systems working of their, of their own court. Um, and that seemed to me like an ideological fable rather than an actual account of, um, of what had happened. And so it also occurred to me like that part of the ideology surrounding these fables of these heroic individuals saving us from nuclear Armageddon, what was really perhaps a more horrifying prospect that um, underlay these kind of fables of individual heroism was the fact that it what was actually working was mutually assured destruction, so that there was actually yeah. a stable system of nuclear deterrence. So rather than a tale of individuals triumphing against the system, what it actually was was a tale of the system working as intended, that the machinery oh. and the checks and balances worked. Yeah. And that, I think, is a more, um, in a way, it's a more terrifying prospect than the ideas yeah. of individual heroism. So
2: yeah, I mean, and also in the piece there's I guess another way to read this, which is not again against the kind of the individual sticking by their their morals and their like um uh their, their judgment. It's that they, you know, how were these Soviet officers um socialized? Like the system worked, i.e. the Soviet system worked, it's uh, you know, a fundamentally humanist and pro um pro-human history. <laughs> um kind of way of understanding the world so there's you know there's a, a, a an additional wavering before hitting the big red button because you know the soviet union was was um at least seen by some as the, you know this was carrying the hopes of humankind so there's a gonna have to be quite a lot to do um to kind of overcome that and and destroy the the whole world or, or move towards that um that kind of moving that direction and of course this isn't the situation which pertains today i mean the more that you take that 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 movement away from these individuals like towards either is it the system of mutual disorders assured destruct, destruction is it so the kind of pro-humanism of the soviet system like today we we instead have a situation where the um there's a complete lack of legitimacy i would say of the american system and also i would also probably to a large extent the russian system within the framework of russian nationalism or very limited legitimacy so you have the like a greater scope for individual action and that is not necessarily what you want in this in this situation instead you want a um, individuals to express the, the systems because those systems at least in one sense should be sufficiently rational not to not to destroy human humankind in in the process and just one final point point, um, i would say there is an example of americans um american officers saving uh the world from nuclear destruction and it's in the film crimson tide but this of course is a dramatization of the um, of the russian <laughs> situation yes. just uh, flipped over to the uh, american it's a very good it's, film though it's and actually, it's well worth watching
1: so it's crimson tide with denzel washington and um gene hackman who plays the opposite his opposite number it's yeah. actually a dramatization of what happened on the soviet subs um, in cuba 19 in the 1960s yeah that's
2: literally what i just said
1: you didn't make clear that it was a dramatization yeah. of the actual soviet episode though um no. so but anyway i mean i'm not sure i agree with george that the soviet union was a triumph of um of humanism and that you know there were kind of rivers of chocolate and that it was a land of milk and honey um, but it was but what is it, is it,
2: milk and honey and or it chocolate? was a
1: question it was a question that is worth raising is and I don't I don't as far as I know it's not been kind of seriously considered in the scholarly literature around nuclear deterrence is how much um, ideology matters, right? In terms of like um, you know whether or not it makes a difference from uh, an officer who's kind of socialized and trained in the context of Soviet communism versus an officer who's raised, trained, indoctrinated, and so on in the context of um, Russian humanism, and I you know I mean so I mean um, the I think it's a question that's worth asking. So there is debate about how far there are ethnocentric assumptions behind Western models of deterrence and how far. The Soviets um, were, you know, were willing to reciprocate those models in terms of their war planning. Um, but that is, I think it's a separate question from, you know, the idea of a universe, a universalist ideology and a nationalist ideology and what's involved in pushing, as George says, um, the red button.
0: so it might be a good point here to try to reconstruct historically what the differences are what what the cold war was about and what people tried to uh, how people tried to understand what had brought the world to the brink of nuclear conflict and to contrast that with today so so obviously you know it, it, in the cold war depending on what side you were on, there were attempts to point the finger, you know, at one side or the other, the Soviets were totalitarian and didn't care about blowing up the world or or maybe it was the American um, capitalist imperatives driven by profit uh, and just generally competitive mindset, which started this whole thing off and that the Soviets were merely reacting. The reality was, is that this was a process that was set in place that was self-recreating, self-perpetuating and was obviously... Uh, completely irrational from a wider human perspective, even if it was instrumentally rational in terms of uh, action and reaction um, and the responses and the need to, to uh, maintain nuclear parity between the two sides. But that shouldn't draw away from the fact that there was an ideological competition ongoing, obviously in the cold war. And that's something that's absent now. How does that make it more or less Threatening a situation, the fact that Russia is also capitalist power and that what's going on is just competition between two capitalist powers rather than two powers that represent alternative systems
1: how far does it make a difference that there's, you know, what the nature of the political competition is? I suppose that's, you know, again, that's, it's a very hard question to answer, but I think it's, it's Uh, it could be,
0: it could be that there's none, you know, I mean, it could well be that in fact, the ideal, the the degree of ideological competition in the cold war wasn't actually the most important thing, um, at least as concerns nuclear conflict or the possibility of it, that in fact it was just this self perpetuating. Um, system of uh, armaments of uh, yeah. of the I increasing mean, militarization I, of society well, and so on, and that that actually the... is something that is still very much with us.
2: No, there, I mean there is a point um, which maybe to throw in here that certainly the like the idea that you have the, the Soviet Union, this like you know, it's it has some solidity. It's not based on. It's not. It's not that well. It did t- turn out to be, but in the sixties, it was not that brittle. It was of the cuban missile crisis like it was not the case that if you just um got rid of one person the whole system fell apart so i guess what i'm trying to say is that there's the personalization of like what russia's doing is in, in in the figure of putin i think mm. is makes it does make things objectively more unstable because there is a lot of psychologizing and projection um onto this worse than hitler character which which means that that there is a kind of a more of an un maybe an unmooring from that like here's the national interests of russia here's the national interests of america which are you know neither has an interest a national interest in in suffering a nuke in being like nuclearly attacked by another state i mean that's obvious so i think there is something there that which i, think, I don't yeah which I, I think it's, what like, I, western it's, liberals important have to like recognize their own like role
0: in i think what you were saying is right and it raises the, the possibility for nato of regime change which uh you know wasn't a kind of proximate objective in the cold war phil
1: yeah i mean it's a good point um that they are i mean there are elements of the u.s state that are clearly thinking in those terms Whereas, you know, it was roughly, it was containment in the Cold War. They knew that can, you know, that regime change would have been suicidal from, you know, because it would be nuclear war. Now, all I wanted to say was, as far as ideology, ideological differences go, um, what I was, you know, what I raised with introducing it um, in the Unheard piece was how far uh, universalist ideology acts as a check on nuclear war. Um, In terms of the motivations and the actions of individuals, you know, operating at all levels of the system. So that was how I, you know, that was how I was thinking about it in the context of the piece that I wrote for Unheard, whether or not it has wider ramifications, um, the absence or the presence of, um, of competing ideological systems with universalist claims, you know, that it's, I think it must do. Um, but in ways that are probably difficult to grasp and obviously kind of, you know, seem trivial, perhaps at the level in terms of nuclear destruction being the stakes of what you're talking about. Um, but nonetheless, I think it would, they should, and they would affect the ways in which a nuclear crisis might play out. I mean, it's worth thinking about just through the comparisons, I think, in, you know, a bit of detail. So in both cases, right, you've got a um, a kind of... Uh, a neighboring power, you know, kind of in both cases of the US and Cuba and with Russia and Ukraine, you've got a neighboring state that was traditionally seen as being, you know, de facto um in the backyard of the great power. And that the this neighboring state is being used as a base by an opposing power in order to take advantage, you know, kind of squeeze geopolitical advantage um out of the out of the situation. Aside from that, you also have you know kind of tremendous differences in terms of the in terms of um, the two contexts. So both sides were much more, I think, as George said, militarily and politically solid in the context of the nineteen sixties. Um, you know, kind of uh, Kennedy famously with his inauguration speech: "It's not what it's not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country." And the USSR enjoying kind of a period of um, economic expansion and um political legitimacy from the crustevera reforms so these were both kind of systems that seemed to be in their prime um and also in kind of strongly um confrontational um antagonism with each other
0: yeah and i think you have already drawn attention there to the question of consciousness and i think it's worth spelling out what the differences are um you know from the middle of the cold war to to today uh, on the one level the uh appeal of patriotism Um, And the locking in of kind of that Cold War mentality, paranoia in many cases, um, was very powerful. But at the same time, you had a left that was self-consciously opposed to nuclear weapons, and you had an anti-war movement. I think in some ways, both those things are lacking today. We've discussed the possibility of a resurgence of the attempt to appeal to patriotism today in in Western societies. But the reality is, is that it's still much weaker, certainly in Western Europe, uh, than it was in the Cold War period. At the same time, you don't really have an anti-war movement. You don't have a a wider consciousness of the fact that there are these nuclear weapons which which we keep reproducing and that Absorb a huge amount of the social surplus uh, to maintain them. The last gasp, I guess, or the resurgence of the anti-war movement was around the war in Iraq, something which has completely disappeared from the scene today. So I think one thing, and I hinted at this at the beginning, that one thing that makes our current period so... Um, unstable, precarious, and and throws us into the possibility of a nuclear conflict is the fact that no politicians alive today really have any consciousness of war and the the importance of avoiding it. It's something that's been pursued over in distant countries by professional armies and by high tech military hardware, um, where we don't, we, you know, Western publics don't bear the consequences of much less uh, Western politicians. Russian
1: Russian public too, as well. I mean, you know, that has also been a feature of uh, Russian military interventions in recent years, which is in contrast to both Khrushchev and um and Kennedy, right? Both of whom um, you know, were veterans. Of uh, the Second World War, right? They had kind of um, yeah. they were both involved in their mutual respect in their respective countries' war efforts, and they both had a very and you know and that the same would be true of you know kind of advisors, ministers, bureaucrats, officials surrounding them. They would have all have had you know experience and memory, if not direct experience of having been in war. Whereas, you know, I mean, though Biden is old, um, you know, he repeatedly dodged the draft um, by going to college to avoid going to Vietnam.
2: So just to throw something in there as well, I think like, actually we do have a consciousness of war today, but it's a different sort of war. It's the, it's the kind of, you know, when you put something on a rolling boil, it's like the rolling forever war. So instead of these like mass mobilizations where you actually go and fight or whatever, but now it's you know it's always on in the background it's always background harm like, yeah yeah so now we you know we're always at war We've got to check you know the latest update who we're at war with and, and what this means for the you know for yeah
1: the, I think that was military that expenditure cl- there was but, that you know that was true in the Cold War as well I mean it yeah. was kind of the third world wars
0: constantly and and are being fought as proxy wars between the two yeah, superpowers I mean I
1: think that you know with the difference that it wasn't happening quite you know with the exception of the Cuban Missile Crisis quite so close to the territory of, um, of the major state. Um, but I mean, I think, you know, the other two important things apart from the wartime experience of the leaders compared to now is also, they were both, um, in their own ways, kind of popular and charismatic, you know, so Khrushchev, though, you know, as the kind of buffoon, he was, um, popular on the world stage. He had the, um, he enjoyed the benefit of having kind of over initiated de-Stalinization, releasing all the prisoners from the gulag, promising all sorts of crazy, you know, kind of economic improvement to people in the Eastern Bloc. And Kennedy, obviously, you know, was um, the youthful Catholic, um, you know, president who was also charismatic and popular and all the rest of it in, you know, stark contrast to um, Biden and Putin, Um, Putin much more isolated and far less um, legitimate on his own terms, at least. Um, You could make the case, you know, even to even now, with all of his kind of autocratic, high handedness he still has great, greater claim to democratic legitimacy than Khrushchev ever did. But nonetheless, I mean, on his own terms, he seems more isolated, less legitimate. And Biden is senile. You know, I mean, even his supporters kind of, um, kind of, you know, admit it. And I think they joke about it in a way to avoid the horror of actually accepting the fact that they have a senile president in the midst of um, of a nuclear war crisis.
0: Does, does that which make is it genuinely shocking? does that make it more risky i i wonder because you know if you have a leader which has um some trust from the deep state and the establishment um that he also acts as a, a perhaps a lightning rod for criticism but someone who you can um try to try to influence you know from it's a really from the good streets I mean, who, and 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 now you know, if you're knows? trying to do that it's not like oh biden stopped doing this war because it's not like biden the one doing the doing and i think that's widely acknowledged that so makes it But it means it's not clear
1: who's in charge. But, you know, so, I mean, his advisors and, you know, people in the State Department walk back from claims that he makes, say, over um, the U.S.'s commitment to defending Taiwan. Um, So, you know, that suggests that there is no kind of clear, um, you know, maybe those kind of shifting coalitions of, you know, in the U.S. deep state behind him that are gouging each other in their attempt to kind of um, become, you know, the puppet master or the power behind the throne. And it's very hard to tell from the outside how that works. The other one kind of, I mean, these are mainly differences we've been talking about between the two periods, but one thing where there is a striking similarity, and I don't really have an answer to it, but it's worth noting, I think, is how um in both cases. So you have, you know, the kind of the leaders of the two nuclear powers in both cases. Um, Rush in you know, Russia, Putin, Khrushchev um america biden kennedy but also the third kind of player in zelensky in ukraine and castro in cuba and in both cases you know they were remarkably um remarkably gung-ho you know so you have kind of castro to the point of saying to khrushchev let's just get this over with and kind of launch a preemptive nuclear strike um instead of you know on I'm not willing anymore to kind of um, can bear the tension of being on the brink of a US invasion because Castro assumed a US invasion was coming. And Zelensky um, consistently kind of, um, you know, pushing the envelope on the nature of the war in Ukraine, kind of not only obviously trying to kind of draw the West in deeper, but also making um, regime change in Moscow, the condition, you know, of Ukraine's war effort. Um, claiming even you know that the that the West should launch a preemptive strike on Russia to prevent it using nuclear weapons in Ukraine um, before supposedly you know his advisors kind of talked him or talked out of that. But so the smaller power that is the you know the place where the kind of conflict is being fought over in both cases their leaders remarkably um, extreme in their you know in the context.
2: Yeah, I think it's worth reiterating that point about Zelensky saying that he would not sort of like the putting on a putting a condition to the end of the war um being the removal of 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 putin that's a that it that immediately raises the stakes and any kind of it it feeds into this what i think is a a difference between the two contexts where it seems like the op the option of like a conditional surrender or like there being some de-escalation which was which was um it seemed to, to me at least in my understanding of the cold war of the cuban missile crisis to be what both sides wanted as long as they didn't get um kind of game theory theoryed out of a superior position um but now that's not what the you know we made this point earlier in in recording but that's not what at least some sections of the um, western kind of military or um military adjacent establishment want they want an unconditional surrender they want um a humiliation a punishment of of putin and and his followers his lackeys which immediately means that the situation is um is is slightly different because the resolution uh the the opportunities for resolution are are, are narrower
0: yeah no i think that's it's important to reiterate that point exactly how gung-ho some of these political leaders are and that the kind of realist concern with limiting war to a certain extent, seems to be something that's not really very much on the cards. And look, if you look at the way that other leaders of Eastern European countries are behaving, you know, you recently had the Latvian premier basically saying, we need, you know, we need kind of total war to avoid war. Um, you know, basically such amplified rhetoric, um, or indeed the celebration of the blowing up of the Nord Stream pipeline. And, um, You know, these things kind of follow on themselves in quick succession, and they're all played out on social media. Um, So it makes the situation kind of more volatile. At the same time, and I think I want to get onto something which Phil has written on is the absence of mass participation, because of course, uh, to recall, you know, one of the key themes of the end of the end of history is that you have a return of politics. You have suddenly, uh, a breaking through of what was a very inertial situation during the end of history, but without the return of masses to politics. And in some ways this makes the situation more volatile. Um, but it also means that you do not have the mass nationalism and patriotism that you saw in the lead up, for example, to the first world war, uh, a period that some people have drawn, uh, drawn attention to as a, as a correlate to ours. But I think, you know, something is very fundamentally different in that you do not have masses on the streets cheering on war and, and the, the, the coming of a, of what would cut would be no, the but you world didn't, war.
1: You didn't have it in the Cuban missile crisis either. Right. So, I mean, it depends on which analogy you, you know, what you're trying to week out with which analogy. And I mean, I, you know, I suppose I always wondered where, um, you know, what did people do during the Cuban missile crisis, You know, did those who had TVs, did they huddle around the TV the whole time? Um, Was everyone kind of glued to the radio? Were people watching TV screens outside of TV shops? Or did people kind of go about their lives? You know, I always wondered. And I think the answer is that we, well, you know, probably it happened the way it's happening now. Everyone's getting on with their lives. And I think that's a symptom Mm, um, of powerlessness. There is a
2: difference. I think one of those differences is that as far as i understand it there was uh, there would have been at that point a series for example for school children a series of drills like what happens in the event of a nuclear strike get under your under your desk there's like a a greater i mean and that's a very low level of mobilization you might say but but it, it is something it was, w- yeah, which is like was... this is what you like this is a this is a possibility this is what you have to do in this eventuality this is but your, it was all doing theatrical your
1: as well it was
2: the, yeah, you know, but we don't the have theatrics. that today. Instead, you have a different no. sort of like pseudo mobilization, which is people through social media can can sort of participate in quote unquote popular IR. Like they can provide their analysis, they can provide their their, their take, and they can can to a greater or, <laughs> to a larger or smaller audience express their opinions on it. But um, yeah, I mean, I think it's you know it is. I suppose is, I mean yeah. the
1: you know what I was trying to get across was um, you know passivity. And powerlessness is what kind of explains the bizarre kind of disjuncture between this extraordinarily intense and dangerous moment in geopolitics and the total kind of ordinariness of of everyday life as it continues. You know, people aren't in the streets, you know, either demanding escalation or demanding restraint. Um, and it's because I think it's the, you know, it speaks to the depth of political alienation. I mean, there's yeah. been some, you know, significant anti-war protests and anti-mobilization sentiment in Russia. But outside of that, you know, it's total kind apathy reigns. And it speaks, I think, to just how little control people have politically um, over their deep states in particular um, and foreign policy that we, you know, it's just kind of the drift and the powerlessness is um is very evident. No, Everyone goes about their daily lives despite mm-hmm. the possibility of um, you know, a genuine possibility of a nuclear war.
0: Yeah. And obviously our argument here isn't that we should all be um, you know, frightened in our skin and uh making preparations for for nuclear conflict, but on the contrary, that we should be politically aware and and uh, in fact demanding an end the conflict in ukraine and putting i think uh you know peace at least at the kind of forefront of the discussion i think it's also worth considering what how at least western european publics perceive the possibility of conflict and indeed the degree of patriotism now there's no way to measure this, you know, entirely objectively, but surveys show how few, what small proportion of Western European publics would actually fight for their country. So when asked, I mean, just to cite a couple of figures in Germany, it's 22%, France, 33%, the UK, 29%. Europe as a whole, it's only 33% who would fight for their country versus 38 who wouldn't and a whole other third who basically say they don't know. So, you know, that isn't especially mass enthusiasm for defending their country militarily and that's the that's the perplexing thing about her moment the the exceptions to that in just in to restrain ourselves to europe our countries um, much more at the border of uh, of Europe who have a history of conflict or who have a history of the kinds of mobilizations for a potential conflict over longer periods. So, you know, in Finland, the, the, those figures are more like two thirds or three quarters of the population, Turkey yeah, they as well. Also have conscription.
1: And so on. They have conscription yeah. in both those countries as yeah, well. So exactly. I imagine that plays a role in um, also in kind of enhancing um, the kind of willingness to, to fight for one's country and, um, I mean I think also I mean those numbers are also partly reflections of um of conscious choices made by state elites over time and also partly a reflection of nuclear war itself right you know if war is kind of conducted um through standoff and deterrent mutually assured destruction and deterrence strategies and through kind of threats and bluff and bluster um it's also war in you know war which is remote kind of has no Connection to um, kind of ideas of politics based on citizen participation. Um, so you know, partly the very fact of uh, you know the very fact that we have nuclear weapons and that nuclear weapons are kind of the stand-in for war itself is testimony to um, the way in which publics have been excluded from political life over the course of the twentieth century as well. Um, And I think that's an important element of it. The other thing which we should mention we haven't is, I mean, you know, so the Cuban Missile Crisis sparked off a long process of attempts to kind of curb and restrain nuclear rivalry. Um, It was in the aftermath of the Cuban Missile Crisis that they set up the so-called the red kind of telephone line between, um, between the Pentagon and Moscow and the Kremlin, rather. Um, and it also initiated a series of kind of attempts to restrain atomic bomb testing um, to um, kind of initiate nuclear arms reduction talks and so on. And all of those structures of deterrence of um, nuclear arms control agreements, which are based on kind of you know high level um, uh, familiarity with each other's weapon systems, with each other's kind of negotiating stances, with each other's um, red lines and politics and outlooks and so on. All of those structures have decayed. So, you know, they've been allowed to wither away at the end of the Cold War. And so we're at the very, you know, we're at the other end of the process in terms of nuclear diplomacy that was initiated by Cuba. And I think that is also um, what makes the situation exceptionally dangerous. So I was talking to an ex-American diplomat who's been involved in um, trying to, who's been involved in kind of... um, civil society efforts around uh, questions of nuclear security. Um, And he told me that, you know, there are fewer connections now between Russian and American nuclear scientists than there were in the Cold War, which, you know, seems to me like remarkable and astonishing. So in terms of sharing Mm -hmm. data, in terms of familiarity with each other's technologies and, um, you know, kind of bases, there is even less of that now than there was in the Cold War. The other thing he told me which was terrifying and I mean I'm assuming he you know he knows what he's talking about is that we have much better understanding now of nuclear winter than we did in the past and that the models for nuclear winter for modeling nuclear winter scenarios are actually much better in terms of their um accuracy and predictive capacity than climate change models are for instance because we have very direct um we have very direct kind of uh, examples of or anal- analogous examples that have provided data that can be fed into models, and that's and like what do volcanic they say? explosions. Well, so vul- volcanic explosions and large bushfires kind of throw up soot into the atmosphere, which um, produces certain kinds of effects, and it's these um, kind of events that allow that have allowed people to model nuclear winter much better. Anyway, according to according to what he was telling me, his familiarity with the nuclear modelling scenarios is that so a nuclear war between um, Pakistan and India so which is to say a small scale nuclear war by comparison with the war between um, a nuclear war between Russia and the U S it's estimated would lead to 2 billion deaths. Right. So, you know, a few, I mean, you know, tens of millions, perhaps in the first, in the nuclear, initial nuclear exchanges, but the, um, the consequences of nuclear winter, the breakdown of um, of uh, agriculture, would lead to mass starvation as well as disease, and the general kind of economic disruption would lead to deaths from hunger and disease and disorder on on that scale. Um, as a result of uh, you know so many milligrams of so-called black carbon being thrown up into the atmosphere, and he says he may you know says very very uh, clearly that there would be we would not have concerns with global warming for many many years. After a nuclear war, even in between well, India and Pakistan, let alone does, Russia
2: and America, does this change all that much? I mean, I, I don't think anybody thought it would not be bad. I mean, and so it, so the well, more detail of according to prove.
1: Yeah, I mean, according to him, though, you know, the previous models didn't estimate numbers that high, um, based on a purport, you know, a certain kind of assumptions about the uh, tonnage of, um, you know, yeah, the kind of I mean, kilotons it, of nuclear power it's... unleashed
2: important not to get too wrapped up in this kind of you know it's another variety of apocalypse we have enough kind of popular portrayals of of apocalypse i mean you know not to say that there's not i'm sure i think i think it is validity right because the point
0: is to politically oppose it because it it is precisely a world in which we're so accustomed to prognostications of disaster extermination annihilation etc etc that we should be very serious about this issue in particular because it demands political action um and i think one thing that has struck me in also reading this piece uh, on titled exterminism by, by E.P. thompson is that the term today isn't used in reference to nuclear annihilation but to climate change but they're very different things right and i think it's important to spe- important to spell out what they might be um the, the kind of models of accelerated climate change of 2 3 degrees warming um is obviously disastrous um but the but climate change itself is a contradiction of civilization of burning fossil fuels it's stuff that has taken society civilization forward which ends yeah, up having no one, a, a negative a negative yeah, uh, yeah, no feedback one predicts- effect
1: no one predicts billions of deaths. Exactly. Exactly. From, from climate change. Exactly. Not dealing with
0: not de- dealing with not dealing with climate change would take a huge surplus um, to try to even maintain the same civilizational level. So not reacting to it, not trying to decarbonize, would be irrational. But, it, but creating climate change, what has created climate change isn't irrational. In fact, it's the progress of civilization. Nuclear exterminism is of an entirely different order. It's the direct use of the social surplus to the most irrational and nihilistic end. Yeah, but,
1: so George but George makes the point you know that the the kind of the politics of fear that was so current at the end of the history is in fact born out of um, it's born out of uh, the origins of lie in nuclear war. And the apocalyptics, you know, the kind of the apocalypticism of climate change also stems from Mm. initially, you know, that model of exterminism um, stems from nuclear war. And I mean, it's important in as much as, you know, kind of from E.P. Thompson's point of view, it's a popular front, you know, kind of a human front. It's the ultimate kind of grand popular front in which class interests are dissolved away into, um, you know, instead of uh, fighting the Nazis, it becomes kind of ending nuclear war. But it, again, it's, he explicitly justifies the dissolution of politics. So a post-political kind of scenario, essentially, and, um, justified by the scale of the threat that's needed to, um, to overcome um, the risk of nuclear war. And this is what motivates um, the campaign for nuclear disarmament and unilateral nuclear disarmament. I think that's a difference from what we're suggesting here. Because Absolutely, I mean, yeah. I don't think it. You know, I'm not. I'm not making the case for you know nuclear disarmament, let alone um, unilateral nuclear disarmament, which I think would be crazy. Um, but the idea that it requires kind of um, you know diplomacy between great powers. Um, very basic kind of aspect of power politics, that it requires a return to nuclear arms, kind of uh, multilateral nuclear arms control and efforts. Not that I put such tremendous store by them as ways to kind of bring about peace in a capitalist world system, but I think, you know, nonetheless kind of generally welcome. Um, and those are political, you know, those are kind of political solutions. So I would, uh, I think, you know, you, I think it is possible to, um, reckon with the sheer kind of uh, the scale of what's involved in in a nuclear Holocaust without being forced to retreat into Thompson's kind of proto, his model of proto post-politics, if I can kind of coin that hmm. clunky phrase.
0: I mean, as it happens, he, he said, you know, he, he mentions the failure of, uh, of CND of the campaign for nuclear disarmament. Um, but in any case, I think the point that I was trying to draw at precisely now is that it requires a politicization today to take on that question, and to um, so that the, also that the politicization that there is today is attentive to this question because it seems to be insufficiently discussed because the, the risks are seen as far away, not real, or perhaps if they are broached, so grand as to not really uh, warrant discussion. But there are. So you know,
2: what what do you mean by a, a politicization of of what exactly Sorry, i might just be being of dense, the question but... of the
0: question of 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 the possibility of nuclear confrontation and the fact that the leaders in moscow and washington are very blithe um blasé even about the fact that this is a real risk well,
2: what um, does that i mean what does that politicization look like i mean i'm i'm not trying to attack what you're saying too much but it seems to me like just politicizing that and the risk is of just doing that is that it then gets dissolved into this kind of cosm- you know, cosmopolitan like this is in humanity's interest you, you don't have like any kind of national sovereignty to to
0: no to no, no I, in, in absolutely on. not it's it, just it, like it's... we
2: have to on the basis of humanity do xyz which which actually i think is the wrong the wrong way to proceed no, I mean, but that he, he, was, I
1: mean, but that was what I was, you know. I think there is that that kind of post-political cosmopolitanism is is implicit in, um, in Thompson's exterminism model, and it is the origin of, you know, kind of um, Ulrich. You know, it's kind of there's this close overlap with Ulrich Beck's kind of political theorizing, again, kind of cosmopolitan post-politics and risk society. And what I'm saying is that it, it, you know, if it's understood as that you have to work within the current configuration of geopolitics and it should be based on diplomacy like i say a very basic aspect where you accommodate the whole point of diplomacy is recognizing and accommodating a plurality of political interests yeah. that need to be you need to adjust to them rather than kind of you know regime change ad infinitum yeah um you know that seems to me like it's a political it is a political outlook on the problem rather than a retreat into post politics Um, And, you know, I take, you you know, like I am, like you, George, I mean, obviously, I'm cautious about apocalypticism, but at the same, you know, by the same token, if you do genuinely think, you know, that nuclear war is a bad thing, then you need to reckon with, you know, what makes it bad. And by the, you know, I mean, if any, you know, I mean, even if the new, even if these nuclear models relate to me by this ex-diplomat, even if they're, say, off by 50%. If the lower range of estimates of casualties is 2 billion and we half it, and it's only 1 billion, you know, I mean, it's still Even if a seven... it's 100
0: times out of whack, it's if... still something that we no, shouldn't I be growing. I think there
1: is, there it, is, is still it does play an ideological
2: role. It's like, it, it does play an ideological role because it's like, this thing is so bad that all
0: of the rules need to be thrown. I mean, I-, I
2: kind of It's not about all the- No, no, the it's precisely people,
0: not all the rules but, have to be thrown it's not out. About it's about precisely an out. argument for political realism. And only kind of mass politicization can force- political realism on our political elites who are completely, uh, you know, have, have have kind of given up on uh, diplomacy and, and any calculation of political realism under the exactly the post-political cosmopolitanism of yeah. the end of history right. period yes, in which they're right. able to pursue war uh, at willy-nilly wherever they want without any so I think consequences. The, yeah.
1: And that's the difference. So Thompson is offering kind of this proto-post-political model of exterminism. He's offering it as a response to the national security states of the cold war. Um, whereas we're in the situation where we have a nuclear kind of crisis that's emerged out of post-political cosmopolitanism effectively. And so the answer is how you respond to a nuclear crisis that's emerged out of post-political cosmopolitanism, not from the nuclear stand, the geopolitics and the ideology ideological rivalry of the cold war. And in that context, it seems to me to make sense that given kind of elite detachment and the sheer lack of responsiveness of states to their populations, both East and West, it does make sense to suggest, you know, that kind of um, ensuring, you know, I mean, that the condition of their ability to go into this crisis is their detachment from popular interest. And if you're able to express popular interest better, you could check the tendency towards warmongering um, which is, you know, so evidently at work in their relations at the moment.
2: So, Phil, you've written a book on cosmopolitan dystopia. I mean, the, I mean, is it? Do you see this like thesis as being vindicated by the movement towards nuclear war to the extent that, like, if we were to see this, it would be both a vindication of that argument and also a, obviously, a terrible empirical situation to be in.
1: Uh, I suppose so. I mean, I didn't, you know, so the book, I mean, so the book Cosmopolitan Dystopia talks about the increasing, you know, I mean, the the thesis is that the recurrence of military intervention has eroded, um, eroded state sovereignty, eroded centralized sources of political order and resulted in not, you know, the kind of cosmopolitan, um, vision that we were promised, but a cosmopolitan dystopia. And this would lead to great power conflict as they start encroaching on each other's spheres of influence. So, I mean, the encroachment in other spheres of influence, you know, is definitely, I mean, obviously that's occurred and that's why there is a war in Ukraine. Um, I didn't, in writing the book, it didn't occur to me that it would, uh, you know, that it would kind of escalate so quickly, I suppose, into a nuclear crisis and also that it would, um, You know, that there might be kind of that the um, political context, uh, cosmopolitan political context for nuclear war is a different kind of political context to the political context of nuclear crises in the Cold War. And um, I mean, uh, you know, that's become kind of clearer to me through the course of this discussion.
0: And we should add, of course, that, you know, um, this is something which is an ongoing Issue, I think, even if the um, the Ukraine conflict were to reach a a sort of um, an armistice of some sort, even a seemingly lasting peace deal, um, which actually doesn't seem very much on the cards at all, uh, the increasing great power rivalry with China means that these sorts of um, you know eruptions of conflicts in localized areas, but which could spiral out further, um, continue to be a, a reality. Whether it's something you know, some conflict over the South China Sea or whatever. Um, So I think that that just is important to underscore how different that is to the world that we've all grown up in, in the end of history, when there was perma war, but it was far away, it was inconsequential. And politicians learned that you could have consequence-free war. Um, consequence-free both in terms of it, human terms, but also for their yes, own right. political yeah. um situation. Yeah. You know, if anything, you you go launch some war far away, that might bolster you in the polls, or maybe no one pays attention. But either way, there's no consequences, and yeah. we're in a world which is far more consequential now, um, yeah. again, both in political and in human terms, than um yeah. than than we grew up with. And I think the faster yeah. we come to terms of that and realize that not just us, the three of us sitting here, but the world at large, the better. Okay, well, um, we will leave this here. We hope you've uh, enjoyed accompanying us on our 300th episode. Hopefully we were wrong about everything we've said and that there is no risk of uh, nuclear annihilation whatsoever. Um, But nevertheless, I think the point about political seriousness, about the um, consequential times that we live in, would stand regardless. Okay, so uh, if you enjoy BungaCast, please follow us. We're at BungaCast. Follow us on uh, Spotify, Apple Music, Podcasts, etc., wherever you get your podcasts. And we're on social media at BungaCast, everywhere you care to find us. And of course, uh, as uh, George said earlier, we have at least two new original episodes a month that come out for patrons only. That's paywalled uh, for those paying $5 a month. Uh, And we have our reading club, which uh, we're in the concluding sections of. Please join us and we'll have more on that uh, for the forthcoming year. Um, that's for $10 patron subscribers. And if you have friends who might be interested in listening to BungaCast, let them know. All right, that's it from us for now. Catch you later. Bye bye.